Hello and welcome to Spectator Out Loud. Each week we ask three writers from the magazine to read their pieces aloud. I'm Natasha and here's what we have this week. Sam Leith asks if technology is killing our children's nostalgia. Kate Andrews writes about why she's torn over Liz Truss. And Toby Young tells us about his holiday to Iceland. First up, Sam Leith. The latest trend among the signs of Generation Z those born between 1997 and 2012, is posting throwback videos on TikTok. Talk about a snake eating its tail. Having reached the ripe old age of, say, 11, Generation Z is digging through their archives to offer a wan critique of that embarrassing haircut they sported in the dim and distant past of, say, 18 months ago, or reminiscing with friends about Snapchat filters we all used to use. That's silly, but it's also a little sad. As we ponder world historical events on a 10, 20 or 50 year timeline, the long-term effects of Brexit, the resettling of the status quo in European security, even the climate crisis, it's somehow easy to miss changes that are potentially even more lasting and fundamental. This apparently inconsequential story strikes me as an epiphenomenon of one of them. That is, gradually, without all that much fanfare, a whole generation of digital natives have come to adulthood in a world in which the past is no longer the past in the sense in which we're accustomed to understand it. Nothing is forgotten. Almost everything you've experienced, every action you've taken, is ineradicably chronicled somewhere in the cloud. Memory can't play you false or burnish your past with rosy recollection. You can't romanticise or reinvent or re-narrate your own history. The most you can do in terms of taking possession of it, as these throwbackers seem to acknowledge, is to remix the raw material into a mashup or sizzle reel, which mashup or sizzle reel itself becomes a document of your present. Human experience is now recorded on something that looks a bit like an informal version of the blockchain, the distributed public ledger whose unforgiving mathematics underpins cryptocurrencies. Among the ancillary effects of all this, incidental but probably not trivial, is one that seems to bear on the future of politics, that is, people who enter public life are likely to get weirder and weirder. The youthful indiscretion, that dabbling with drugs in your early 20s, the embarrassingly crass fancy dress choice, the moment of sexual exuberance that you might not care to be reminded of, is no longer something that can be quietly forgotten or dismissed with a non-committal non-answer in an interview. The evidence will be there, somewhere, on some cursed TikTok video or Instagram archive for all time. You'd think, perhaps, that we might of necessity adjust our public morality to be a bit more forgiving. But that doesn't, to put it mildly, seem to be the direction in which the culture is moving. Rather, we're keener than ever on scouring our collective and personal history alike for transgressions. It seems quite probable, then, that the only people who survive scrutiny as candidates will be those who, having been dead set on a career in public life since their early teens, exercised superhuman vigilance in making sure that nothing they ever did could come back to embarrass them. We've all met a couple of people with that cast of mind, and they are not the people I would choose to rule over us. Overrepresented in their ranks are the egomaniacal, the priggish and the insane. But it's the psychological, the cultural effect on the broader population that's my real concern here. Nostalgia depends to a large extent on the ability to misremember. The canonical form of nostalgia captured in the Portuguese loanword Sodad, is longing for a past happiness that may have been entirely invented. 
Total Recall is a curse, or not to be so sweeping, an unprecedented new psychological and social fact in human experience. We might snort and say it's the fault of these damn fool youngsters parading themselves on their idiotic social media, and perhaps in one respect it is. But you don't vanish from the digital record by declining to post selfies, and expecting young people to shun their generation's culture outright isn't a reasonable thing to do either. There are a million different ways, not all of them born of triviality or narcissism, in which our lives are placed on the permanent record in real time, and in which our mistakes are not to be learned from, but to be added to the charge sheet. Most of us, at any rate among those who grew up before the internet assembled its vast panopticon, built our sense of our own history around a scaffolding of unreliable memories, meaningful objects and well-worn, part-fictionalised anecdotes. Photographs may tell us about our younger years, or jerky and sun-blown fragments of home movies, Fox documents, old school books, tarnished pieces of jewellery. Those objects aren't always with us. We don't take much of an interest in them in the short or often even medium term. They sit in drawers and attics. We lay them down like wine and then, bam, later on, we find ourselves looking back. Martin Amos has put it characteristically well, capturing, I think, the cadence of the process. Your youth evaporates in your early 40s when you look in the mirror. And then it becomes a full-time job pretending you're not going to die. And then you accept that you'll die. Then, in your 50s, everything is very thin. And then suddenly you've got this huge new territory inside you, which is the past, which wasn't there before. That idea that it wasn't there before, of course it was, but it didn't feel that way, seems to me the telling one. The past didn't crowd around us. It was in that attic, in that drawer, mellowing. But now, the loop between experience and the contemplation of experience, between life and the examination of life, is closing, and ferociously fast. Douglas Copeland gave to his novel Generation X the subtitle Tales for an Accelerated Culture, and as often with Copeland, he was a generation ahead of his time. The real accelerated culture is now, and I suspect that one of the most profound issues for a generation poring over the memories they made just a few years ago and the old media they used to make them, will be how to negotiate that sort of accelerated recall, that sort of instant nostalgia, over the course of a long lifetime. That was Sam Leith. Next, Kate Andrews. I've been lucky enough in my working life so far to hold a string of jobs that have allowed me, if not actively encouraged me, to be critical of government. Coming up through Westminster think tanks in my 20s, I had great fun putting out press releases that tore apart bad public policy. When I had the opportunity to speak to MPs, they'd remind me of the political realities that tied their hands and prevented change. In other words, check your policy privilege. Think tank wonks, commentators and journalists can make all the punchy points they want. They don't face re-election. But there was one politician who over the years consistently took the side of the wonks, who thought liberal reforms were possible so long as one made a compelling case for change. This is how Liz Truss became the darling of the free market right. In response to sugar taxes and crackdowns on junk food adverts, Truss labeled her own government the Banny State. As Chief Secretary to the Treasury, she lambasted the tax burden hovering near a 50-year high, a low-tax utopia compared with today. No matter which ministerial job she held, Truss was loud and unshakable in her commitment to individualism and personal liberty. We free market types couldn't get enough. 
Often when MPs ascend the government ranks, they quietly drop out of think tank initiatives designed to bring together free market politicians. Not Truss. She would stay close to these projects, always turning up to policy paper launches and drinks receptions to give speeches. She was good at garnering media attention. When the Institute of Economic Affairs launched a social freedoms paper in 2019 with the essay On the Nanny State, penned by Truss, Krispy Kreme donuts were piled high on tables as a statement against anti-sugar policies and for selfies. When Truss was pushed by Rishi Sunak in the second leadership debate to explain her journey to conservatism, she said her political journey had been shaped by her schooling. In 2019 on the IA podcast, she told me something different. The reason that I became a conservative, she said, is I hate being told what to do. I prefer this answer. It neatly sums up Truss as a politician. Her campaign promises to challenge the orthodoxy, slash tax, and go for growth are not some new bid to win over the right of the party. They are long-held and well-considered beliefs that stem from one principle, that the state should not have such a grip on people's everyday lives. Lots of free marketeers are excited about the prospect of Prime Minister Truss and the start of a lower tax era. After all, we've been waiting for years for someone to enter number 10 who sees the tax burden as the menace it is. Yet I can't shake the gnawing feeling when Truss goes head-to-head with Sunak on tax that something isn't right. There's a piece missing from Trussonomics today that was fundamental to her old economic agenda. To cut tax sustainably, you also have to slash the size of the state. But Truss has dropped spending cuts as a priority in her bid to be leader. She has even followed Boris Johnson's example in claiming that austerity after the financial crash was a mistake. Arguments about fiscal responsibility are being left to Sunak, who, having spent hundreds of billions of pounds to get through the pandemic, is now calling time on printing money. Meanwhile, Truss seems swept up in the spending spree. She's proposing deficit finance tax cuts, which she insists will spur on growth. Plenty of economists I respect have given their sign-off to Trussonomics, and they may well be right that there's more wriggle room in the public finances to cut tax than Sunak suggests. But Truss's increasingly cozy relationship with borrowing and debt still doesn't sit right with me. She says COVID debt should be treated differently, that the national insurance hike was the wrong approach to tackling it, and she made her feelings known in Cabinet. What's left out of this version of events is that the NI rise wasn't really for COVID. It was to cover social care bills, including the bills of the affluent. Truss privately agreed with Johnson's original plan to throw this hefty day-to-day health spending onto the deficit. There are also plenty of unanswered questions about how Truss plans to get inflation under control. As Britain nears double-digit inflation, Truss is right to point out failures in monetary policy, to question the Bank of England's remit, and to challenge the orthodoxy that its independence from government makes it immune to any criticism. But none of this actually gives her control over interest rates. And if the bank were to rise rates under her leadership, she has so far shown unwillingness to acknowledge what that means for mortgage repayments or credit card debt. I'm not an outright pessimist, at least not when it comes to the economy. Going for growth, as Truss says she wants to do, can replace the need for major spending cuts or tax hikes, but it requires acknowledging the abysmal financial state we're in and then putting forward plans to shake up the public sector. And despite vying for the title of heir to Margaret Thatcher, neither candidate is discussing how she overhauled and reformed the public sector. Today's expensive failures, like the National Health Service, are not even up for discussion. 
According to the Office for Budget Responsibility, our current spending path will take debt to 320% of GDP in 50 years' time. We couldn't afford all our spending commitments before the pandemic, and we certainly can't now. I used to rely on trust as one of the few brave MPs who would make this case. I think there's an issue of politicians over a number of years claiming they can deliver everything, she told me in that same podcast, and that is just not true. It's the kind of thing Sunak is saying nowadays, which Truss might call Project Fear. That was Kate Andrews. And finally, Toby Young. I'm currently on holiday in Iceland. I say holiday, but I'm with my three teenage sons, so it's more like being a supply teacher on a school trip. The scenery looks like a series of illustrations in a geography textbook. Volcano, tectonic plate, glacier. But so far, the boys aren't impressed. Every day is the same, said 17-year-old Ludo. We wake up, drive somewhere, go on a walk, take pictures of a waterfall or a lava field, then walk back again. This produced murmurs of agreement. I told them they'd enjoy the sightseeing more if they looked up from their phones occasionally, but I don't think this cut through. As we hiked across a mountain range on Monday to bathe in a hot spring, 15-year-old Freddy continued reading a graphic novel on his phone. When I asked him if he was ever going to read a real book, he defiantly told me it was about the unification of China in the 3rd century BC. It's actually really interesting, he said. The only times their phones have been prized from their hands was when we spent the afternoon at Sky Lagoon in Reykjavik on Sunday. This is a more upmarket version of the Blue Lagoon, Iceland's most popular tourist attraction. You change into your swimming costume, then embark on a seven-step rejuvenation program involving a massive geothermal spa, an icy plunge pool, a sauna, cold mist, a full body scrub, a steam room, and then back into the giant hot tub. In truth, the boys might have looked up occasionally, even if they hadn't had to leave their phones behind, because everywhere you looked, there were beautiful Icelandic girls in bikinis. Caroline and I entertained ourselves by alerting them every time some blonde goddess hove into view. Three o'clock, three o'clock, I would hiss, only to be met by a chorus of Dad, followed by a lecture about why it was wrong to objectify women. This finger-wagging was neither wholly sincere nor wholly ironic, but somewhere in between, which is their default register when discussing anything remotely controversial. Even though I'm an embarrassing dad, Caroline holds the prize for the most embarrassing moment so far. This was at Sky Lagoon when a spectacularly pretty girl in a white bikini drifted past. Here's one for you boys, she said, but a little too loudly, and the girl immediately shot a disapproving glance in our direction. The boys all reddened and averted their eyes, only to unleash their fury on Caroline the moment the girl was out of earshot. Mum, are you trying to get us arrested? Haven't you heard of intrusive staring? In reality, of course, the three of them are much more embarrassing than their parents. When we were having dinner at a nice restaurant on Saturday night, 14-year-old Charlie disdainfully asked me why I was wearing a suit. I pointed out that while I was in a blazer and jeans, he was the one in a suit, a tracksuit. They were all wearing XL Nike tracksuits, along with baseball caps and vintage trainers, also by Nike. They looked like a parody of urban teenagers. As Caroline said, it's like being on holiday with Kevin and Perry. Still, travel broadens the mind, and seeing how other tourists react to them may yet produce an epiphany. Wandering through Reykjavik city centre, I asked a sophisticated-looking American family if they could recommend any good seafood restaurants. 
We went to a real nice one yesterday, but I don't think your boys would like it, said the matriarch of the clan, eyeing Ludo, Freddy, and Charlie. It's a bit too fancy, if you know what I mean. But I think there's a KFC nearby, so maybe you can work something out. This produced howls of protest, since they liked to think of themselves as gourmands. But the truth is, she had their number. The first time they registered any excitement about being in Iceland is when they discovered that a branch of KFC in Reykjavik had been ranked the best KFC in the world, even winning some kind of prize. Forget about the abundance of natural wonders. Here, finally, was something worth making a pilgrimage to. I blame myself, obviously. If only I'd rationed the time they spent on screens and forced them to read Swallows and Amazons. If only I'd scrimped and saved and sent them to a posh boarding school, they'd now be dressed in Bowden from head to toe and comparing notes on their favourite operas. But I'm not sure I'd prefer them that way. Deep down, they're nice boys, and it's a lot of fun spending time with them. That was Toby Young. And that's it for this week. If you'd like to hear more stories like these, why not pick up a copy of our magazine? I'm Natasha, and do join us again next week. <laughs>